Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The American working world has been flipped upside down. Since 2020, many employees have adapted to working from home, managing hybrid schedules and countless Zoom meetings. But as we look to a future with hopefully fewer pandemic disruptions, what temporary work practices will become permanent and what can we expect for the future of work? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. On this week's show, how the modern workplace is changing. Coming up, we'll hear how the pandemic influenced the organized labor movement. And later, urbanist Richard Florida weighs in on how cities are transforming thanks to a decentralized workforce. But first, for the last two years, many people have gotten used to working from home. A recent survey from Gallup found that only 10% of Americans are interested in returning to a full in-person work week. But many companies are pushing for a return to the office. To get a sense of just how important employment issues have become, there's now a future of work beat at the New York Times. That job is filled by our next guest, Emma Goldberg. Emma, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks so much for having me on today. You know, in 2021, you moved from being part of the Times editorial board to this new beat covering the future of work. And so it's a non-traditional beat because of the focus. Share with our listeners what was behind the creation of this beat and what's the goal of it? One of the reasons for the creation of this beat is that we're in a moment when our work lives are being upended. Um, And it started really in March 2020 when about 50 million people changed their workplaces and, you know, left the places where they had been working. At the height of the pandemic in May 2020, more than 30% of people were working from home. So it really was a, a real shift in our routines and in, in everything and all the norms that we've been accustomed to. And now that so many companies are starting to call people back, it's a real juncture where things are in some ways resetting. I think we're questioning what of all the things that changed over the last two years are going to stick. What would you say are the big takeaways that you've already seen in your reporting? I would say one big question that experts are asking and that workers are asking is how can we hold on to some of the flexibility that emerged from our ways of working in the last two years? And how can we ensure that some of the gains for workers aren't rolled back as some of the old ways of working are reset? I spoke with a lot of working parents who said that before the pandemic, They constantly felt this pressure of trying to juggle their responsibilities to their families and their responsibilities to their workplaces. And they felt in some instances that they'd be sitting in their offices, you know, needing to be there just because they were technically on the clock when they weren't necessarily being their most productive. And they also did have obligations to their children or to elders in their family who they cared for. And teleworking has just 
completely expanded and remade the possibilities for them in terms of flexibility. Another big question that is emerging is, um, you know, a lot of people are quitting their jobs right now. There's been this surge of people who are moving between jobs or leaving industries or just leaving the labor force entirely since last August. And that's given workers a lot of leverage. And I think people are asking, how do we translate that leverage that feels very of this moment into something more permanent and ensure that workers can continue to negotiate for and ask their employers for what they really need on the job? The height of the pandemic provided this opportunity for self-reflection for a lot of people to think about what really matters to me in my life and my well-being and what am I willing to accept? And so there's often this concern as companies talk about a return to work, even as we know most people didn't leave work, they were working even more, but thinking about the return perhaps to office. What do you see as some of the challenges of this call for return, given the things that you just mentioned about being able to be more flexible or accommodating or to center multiple priorities without feeling as much of a pull? Such a great question. And I think that really came up for a lot of workers, you know, several months into the pandemic, when managers started talking about a return to work and workers were saying, like you just said, we've been working more than ever. In fact, like so many of the boundaries between our work and lives have evaporated and we're working, we're available at 8 p.m. and at 6 a.m. and, you know, really any hour because our workplace has been detached from the office. So then I think a lot of managers have had to ask, well, then what is the role of the office? And a, a big theme that's come up on that has been mentorship. I think for some early career professionals, it could be really isolating to never meet your team, never get to connect with your supervisor, and never have the direction that comes from that in terms of how you want to plan your career. And so, you know, we are hearing some people saying there are some real gains um, to be made from transitioning back to the office. And I think what the, the path that that illuminates is kind of a very intentional differentiation between what work is best done in the office and what work can be done really from anywhere. The reality is often that work is never just work. There are all of the interpersonal relationships and personalities to manage and and different factors that can really shape whether a workplace is affirming or whether it's draining. And you've talked in your work that, you know, the workplace was never one size fit all, that it has an impact on different people based on their identity or based on their connection in those ways. How is this return to the office landing differently for people based on their identity? I think we have to think about the history of the office. How did the office come about? And we got our kind of modern design of offices throughout the early 20th century. There was one of one of the most famous early open offices was in um, Wisconsin, and it was the manufacturer SC Johnson Wax. And it was, you know, the kind of that big open airy space that we have today where people can see each other working. And you have to think, who was that designed for? Because when that was designed, women made up really under a third of workers in the country. So that's designed for the kind of person who 
doesn't have the pressure of knowing they have to rush out of the office and make daycare pickup at 5 p.m. You know, it's designed for the type of person who wants to cross paths with their boss, maybe a, a white male person, because then he knows that he can talk about golf or their favorite sports team. But in reality, that's not what the workforce looks like today. The workforce is far more diverse. So I spoke with a lot of women and especially women of color who said they had never felt comfortable in their office spaces. And when they started working from home, they finally had more of a sense of autonomy and belonging and comfort. There's some really interesting research that shows the sense of belonging went up for Black knowledge workers um, in, in the last year. And so I think it's, it's all the more incumbent on employers to think about creating a workforce where people feel a sense of belonging and empathy. And maybe that means flexibility. Maybe it means working from home more. You know, I'm listening to you talk about the changing demographics or the ways in which people are navigating expectations. And the word that often comes up in this domain that I detest is the word fit. Is this person a fit for the culture or the climate of this workplace based on things that have nothing to do with their ability? And I'm also thinking here of generational differences of younger workers saying, maybe I don't want to deal with the office politics, or maybe I don't want the expectation that you have access to me 24 hours a day just because you have this email tether. What are the generational differences that you're seeing in your reporting when it comes to the future of work and this sort of return to office question that many are grappling with? I think that earlier on in the pandemic, there was this narrative that emerged that young people wanted to be able to work from anywhere and older people were accustomed to the office, accustomed to their old routines and wanted that reversion to an old kind of norm. And I think the more I've reported on this issue, the more that assumption has really been disrupted because there are many younger people who are craving a sense of workplace community and mentorship. There are many older people who have caregiving responsibilities and really need the flexibility that comes with either hybrid or remote work. That being said, I do think that the kind of upending of the workplace that we've seen in the last two years has called into question a lot of the old assumptions we had around what office politics should look like. I think people have realized that in some cases when they're able to get more emotional distance from their supervisors or from their colleagues, that can be healthier for them. You know, I I had a coworker who wrote a really great personal essay about being pregnant during remote work and not having to answer a lot of questions about pregnancy, which can make someone feel more comfortable. And, And so I think that a lot of people have gotten more comfortable with the kind of emotional distance that they've been able to create. I think that hasn't always broken down along the general generational lines that we might have assumed. Um, but I do think that we've seen a lot of other changes over the last two years that has raised other generational issues, particularly, you know, the the wave of Black Lives Matter protests across the country and the response that that demanded from companies in the summer of 2020. I think you did see a lot of young workers who felt empowered to call on their companies to kind of put their money where their mouth was. And my reporting on generational issues has showed that it's a lot of times the youngest people in the office who feel the most empowered and also the most, you know, that that this is a non-negotiable and they're going to hold their older colleagues to account on creating workplaces that bring dignity to all people. 
So let's talk about one of your articles that I think brings all of that together about the dignity, not just of work, but of people. And the title of that article is No More Working for Jerks. And it sparked a real conversation and debate on social media about bullying in the workplace, about toxic workspaces, about a real commitment, a meaningful, substantive commitment to equity and inclusion. What role do you think that this sort of ability to work remotely, coupled with what some people say is a labor shortage where people are in higher demand and changing the dynamics where people say, no, I don't have to accept this because I have options. I think that those two forces intersecting are giving a lot more workers a platform to stand on in calling out toxic and abusive workplace cultures. For years, we've had this idea that there are certain behaviors that more junior employees just have to tolerate from their managers. And one of the examples that I revisited while working on that piece was the devil wears product. There's that, you know, classic example of a boss who walks into the office and says like, where's my coffee? Has my assistant died? Like there was just this idea that building a career that ascending through a career ladder meant tolerating silently abusive behaviors. And I think for many different reasons, including the surge of people leaving the labor force or, you know, finding better and higher paid opportunities and the, you know, louder and and more substantive conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, all of those have intersected to topple some of those idols that had long been just kind of fixtures of the workplace. And one, one example I, I've um, continued to follow in this regard is Better.com, which was a mortgage, le- a mortgage lending company, which right now is in its own kind of reckoning because the, the founder in December fired more than 900 of his workers on Zoom. And the video of that went viral. It was like a three-minute video where the language was very kind of monotone. And it sparked this backlash. And then a lot of the workers started to step forward and say, you know, I, I interviewed one worker who'd been laid off and he said the perks there were amazing, but those did not offset the abusive culture that people were in many cases kind of subjected to from their managers. And we've also seen this in the the push for unions, you know, at, at Starbucks, at REI, there's a wave of workers who are also collectively organizing um, to get that power in numbers as they're asking for better workplaces. I'm listening to you talk about 900 employees being fired over Zoom and the ways I think the the phrase you use is toppling the idols of thinking that that is just okay. And yet this is the reality that we're living and facing today. But now we have some insight to be able to see it happen and respond. As you think about the, the reporting that you've done, the different dimensions that you're focusing on, what do you envision as the future of work? I, I mean, I think that the, the challenge right now is that there are so many forces pushing against one another to shape what the workplace will look like. There are many companies I speak to who are eager to really reset all of the norms that existed in February 2020. You know, there, there are managers who just want to see the desks filled, the culture kind of humming along just as it was right before the pandemic. And I think Some of them are nostalgic for an old normal that didn't work for everybody. At the same time, there is just this massive swell of voices from workers who are calling back and saying that they won't tolerate those old norms. 
And I, I think that one big open question is, is this push we're seeing for, you know, this, this union drive across the country, is that going to translate into recognized unions and bargains? And I think that's a big question right now, just, uh, I think 11% of American workers are represented by unions and that's, that's low, but that being said, public polling in terms of positive perception of unions is very high. So I think it's, it's an interesting moment for that. I think right now we're in that juncture where a lot of companies are saying the return to office plans that they've talked about for so long are now real. And I think as those start to be cemented, um, the big question is going to be how much flexibility does that allow, allow for? And will, for example, managers be saying you need to be in your seats on these three particular days? Or will workers have a little more flexibility to design the schedules that work for them? Uh, so I think we're we're at a turning point right now where as the plans cement, we'll see how many of the wins and advances carry over. Emma Goldberg is Future of Work reporter for The New York Times. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. This is so great. It was great to talk with you. When we come back, why labor advocates are optimistic about the future of union membership. And later, urbanist Richard Florida talks about how remote work is making cities younger. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week on the show, how the pandemic has changed how and where we work. Later, urbanist Richard Florida talks about reinventing business districts in the age of remote work. But first, although nearly two-thirds of Americans approve of labor unions, union membership has steadily decreased over the last 40 years. Our next guests say the pandemic has helped many see the benefits of labor unionization. Sarita Gupta is vice president of U.S. programs at the Ford Foundation. And Erica Smiley, who goes by Smiley, is executive director of Jobs with Justice. They're the authors of The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. Sarita Smiley, welcome to Disrupted. Glad to be here, Kalila. Thank you. So happy to be with you. You know, you two have really been at the forefront of fighting for a stronger democracy by focusing on economic justice and economic freedom. What was the motivation behind writing this book and why is it so critical at this moment in the country? You know, a lot of people are calling this moment in the country this this great resignation. Sarita and I have been really referring to it more as the Great Awakening. And it reminds me of a period in our history, the last period where the country as a whole was facing in the same direction, trying to fight for a multiracial democracy, the period after the Civil War. And, you know, you look at that period, you had the Reconstruction Amendments, which tried to abolish, you know, abolish slavery, abolish forced labor, the 14th Amendment started defining citizenship, the 15th Amendment started to define who could vote, and our movements have been trying to fight for those and to actualize those for the last 150 years, and our opposition has been trying to roll many of them back. And so in a moment when, in addition to a global pandemic, there's such clarity around the crisis in our democracy, both in the U.S. and globally, it felt really important to bring this piece of it in, that it's not just about voting once a year, it's not just the political democracy, but actually about engaging the full majority in our economic 
decisions as well and setting standards in the place where they spend the bulk of their lives at work. And so that that was the impetus behind wanting to write the book to really center collective bargaining as a pathway to democracy, particularly through the economic framework. Sarita, I want to pick up on that point that Smiley just mentioned, because every day we hear about this great resignation, and it's often used in a pejorative sense toward workers to imply that they're just not committed or people don't want to work. And the two of you have instead said we should see this as the great awakening. Talk to us more about that idea and why that may better capture where we are in this moment. Yeah, I mean, exactly what Smiley said, just building on what she said, we have been referencing this moment as the great awakening in that it's a, it's been a moment of pause, right? Many workers have been asking themselves, what are we like, what do I want and need from work? What is the purpose of work in my life? And what we have found as we talk to workers and actually in our book, we, we profile 10 workers and had a chance to go pretty deep with them. And one of the consistent themes um, that we come across is workers saying, I really want to work in order to live a full life. I want to be able to be active in my kids' lives and be active in my church or in the PTA or whatever it is, but I, but I don't have time to do that. I feel like all I do is live to work. And we talked to an older generation of workers who talk about how they remember a time when they used to work to live a full life and be active. And we talk to young workers today who are saying, wait a second, I don't want my whole life to be just about work. And so that is really what the great awakening is, is a moment where workers are saying, actually, I deserve better. I want more in my life and I'm going to make that happen. And I always like remind myself, you know, I personally, I was very, much shaped from my own experience growing up in Rochester, New York, um, Kodak City, and growing up at a time when I saw and experienced the impacts of downsizing of Kodak. And a lot of my friends' families had worked there for generations building that company up. Um, And I just remember watching them lose good jobs with good benefits. And what I remember most is people feeling a deep sense of the lack of dignity, respect, and agency. And too many people in our society feel that way today. Like, what if we could change this? And that's what the Great Awakening is about. And that this is really critical for us to tap into if we're going to build a multiracial democracy in this country. Smiley, we are in an election year, and one of the key principles of a democracy is that power rests with the people. But when it comes to the economy in the U.S., it's often that that is outside of the people and we just have to respond. Talk to our listeners about why you see having a healthy economy that is cognizant of and responsive to the needs of our diversifying country. How do you see that as central to having a strong democracy that is more than just voting in a few elections every other year? Yeah, I love this question, Kalila, because, you know, at the root of it is this discussion of what democracy is. And in its narrowest form, it's just the idea that maybe you get to vote every now and then. But actually, when we think about democracy in general, what it really means is that the majority of people get to weigh in and make decisions about their everyday lives. 
And part of the struggle that Sarita and I are taking up is to remind people of that broader definition so that they can see themselves in it and so that they can actually understand or begin to understand that this is something they really want. And it's not that foreign. I mean, this is one of those things where our society has practiced democracy in lots of different ways. People are in committees and in decision-making roles at their church. People join local organizations and PTA. You know, the, the country used to be a bustling place for uh, civic engagement and people being a part of conversations. And, you know, I, I so appreciate, I have to tell you, I love working with Sarita, right? Because I just really appreciate the story that she brought in of her own experience in Rochester. And it's crazy because we come from two very different backgrounds. I came from North Carolina. I'm a, a Black woman from North Carolina, from the South. It's one of the, the lowest union membership states in the country. And I didn't grow up around unions. I didn't grow up fully understanding collective bargaining, but I grew up understanding how important it was for people who didn't want me to succeed, how important it was for them to limit the platforms through which I could participate. And so I think it's actually a part of, as a Black person from the South, actually a part of my responsibility and, and kind of my purpose to try to actualize the, the spirit of democracy that our ancestors set forth for us so many years ago. Sarita, I love the way that Smiley has framed this because regardless of where you grow up in the country, we are all affected by the sort of increasing movements to limit collective bargaining. And in this book, you both talk about the power of collective bargaining to bring people together across those divisions that traditionally reinforce the power of a, a very small few to dictate what happens to all of us. What do you see as the needed model or transformative approach to collective bargaining as we think about the 21st century and the realities of workers and work in and of itself? Yeah, Kalila, well, what we see is, again, we're in this moment of great change and transformation right now. The economy, our democracy, and as we've been talking about how people even think about work today, especially in a, in a pandemic moment. And much of this change is being shaped by choices that we make as a people, as a nation, employers, investors, and other stakeholders, but all too often workers and those who can experience the negative impacts of choices are left out of the discussion and decision-making. This is why it is really important that working people are able to exercise collective power and action to create a future for themselves, you know, and opportunities for mobility and prosperity and economic dignity. We can follow that path or we can continue to let others imagine a future that benefits a handful of people, you know, versus benefits us all for generations to come. And so this is where collective bargaining Bargaining is so fundamental to building a healthy democracy. Collective bargaining has to be expanded to meet the needs of modern workers, addressing all the ways that they interact with the economy. So how we talk about that in the book, we, we lift up examples. So one is really making sure it, who are workers bargaining with? Are they bargaining with the right entities? So you use the example of like workers at McDonald's who think they should go to their franchise 
franchise owner to raise wages and talk about health and safety conditions in their workplace, only to have the franchise owner say, well, actually, it's headquarters who makes that decision. And then they go to headquarters who say it's the franchise owners. And so it's a shell game for workers. And meanwhile, in some industries, it's actually, you know, hedge fund investors who are making those decisions. So who is really the decision maker? And how do we make sure we're negotiating with the right entity? The second thing is, what are we negotiating about? The the current labor law framework really limits what workers are able to negotiate around. But meanwhile, in the last few years, we've seen this upsurge of um, teacher strikes around the country. And you think about West Virginia that, you know, really kicked off this amazing movement of teachers and educators around the country who are saying this is not only about our own wages and working conditions, but it is about the greater good of public education in our states, in our cities. So what? how do we leverage the voice and ability that workers already have to actually bring about change for the common good. The third is how do we understand historically excluded workers like domestic workers and farm workers who are excluded from our National Labor Relations Act and our Fair Labor Standards Act. This is all a legacy of slavery. And when, you know, the New Deal was compromised and labor laws were, you know, um, were designed, it was the result of a compromise of Southern plantation owners who really wanted to hold on to the ability to have Black domestic workers, Black farm workers not be under these labor laws. And that still lives with us today. We see the legacy of that. And so how workers and worker organizations who fall outside of traditional labor are are organizing and innovating in this moment to create new pathways. So just by way of an example, you know, you look at domestic workers who've been excluded for so many years, so, so many decades, and you have new tech platforms that are creating spaces for domestic workers to be hired. How do you, how do these two things come together where we're raising the standards for domestic workers. So Smiley and I write in our book about National Domestic Workers Alliance and Handy, a platform you can get house cleaning services, and their ability to create a pilot that actually affords those workers a $15 minimum base pay. And so that's the kind of work we need right now. That kind of innovation exists. And our ability to imagine a new set of policies and norms is what this moment is calling for and what our book really uh, tries to spell out. Smiley, the two of you in this book are really calling for the need for cultural change. There may be people who listen to this and say, that sounds wonderful, but how do I do this today? How do we reach young people, for example, who seem to be very distrusting of institutions and organizations because they see how often their labor has been used, but their voices have not been really recognized and respected? How do you reach those audiences who may not see a path because they for so long have been rejected in that inclusion. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, it really is a cultural shift we're trying to make just to even insert the idea people feel like they should actually be a part of the discussion, which is why one of the fundamental ideas that goes throughout the book that Sreed and I wrote is 
this idea of economic relationships, that it's not just the economy over there, it's not just economic conditions, but it's a relationship and relationships are negotiable and people should be able to come together with others who share similar relationships and negotiate with those stakeholders. But what's interesting about the pandemic, Kalila, is that it introduced this framework of essential, this framework that the working people who had to continue to work weren't simply excluded, weren't simply in low-wage sectors, but were essential. And originally, under the Trump administration, that was in part to keep workers working. But as a movement, we were able to then pivot that to say, look, if, if we're essential to keep the economy running, then you actually have to treat us like we're essential. If you have the, an essential part of a house, the foundation of the house, you make sure that there are no cracks in it. You make sure it's well taken care of. And but you, So you can't actually have an essential sector of the economy be the worst treated. And that's actually a framework that we're hoping we can carry far beyond the pandemic to be really clear that these workers were always essential and that we actually need to treat the essential workers in our economy as decision makers, as a part of the standards and practices and protocols that we set far before any crisis comes into play. And when we do that, we're all the better. In fact, we there was a study coming out of George Washington University showing that in places where assistant living staff had, in Connecticut in particular, in places where assistant living staff had uh, unions, had some platform to negotiate standards in advance as a part of labor management committees and other platforms, that there were 30% less deaths in the facility due to COVID as opposed to assistant living facilities where they didn't have that platform, where they didn't have collective bargaining. If that's not an argument for ensuring that collective bargaining and all platforms that allow working people to negotiate their standards well in advance aren't aren't pervasive throughout the economy, I don't know what is. I mean, that's, that's the thing that literally kept people alive, our ability to participate and weigh in. And so when Sarita and I are talking about uh, economic democracy and when we're talking about collective bargaining as a path to it, we aren't just talking about some nuanced, quirky practice that a set of unions do with a set of employers, but we're actually expanding it to say that collective bargaining is our ability to negotiate all of our economic relationships from an equal platform when we come together with others who share those relationships. Sarita, this book is also a guide to labor organizing. And I have to ask the two of you, as we come to the the close of our time together, given all that you've laid out, I have to ask the two of you, are you optimistic about the future of creating this type of inclusive democracy that centers economic justice and freedom? Are you optimistic? And so I'll start with you, Sarita. Yes, yes, yes. I am very optimistic. As we were just talking about the Great Awakening, this historic moment of refusal where people are not quitting right now to leave the labor force. They're quitting to take other jobs. They're saying we won't accept anything less than living wages, benefits, and safe working conditions, right? And we see this upsurge of workers who are organizing right now across the country. Amazon, the Revo in Bessemer, Alabama, to the recent victories at Starbucks around the country. There is an awakening and Our conversations with all of the workers we had the privilege of speaking with and listening to them and what motivated them 
to play, to take on leadership in their workplaces and fight for change is what inspires me. I feel tremendously optimistic of what's possible if we are smart enough as a society to tap into their visions of what is possible. And, you know, I often think of a West African proverb that helps me kind of make meaning of hard moments and chaotic moments that we find ourselves in today. And this West African proverb is, I am a citizen of a world not yet born. And that is what has inspired me through all the stories of the workers we talk to, but even my just lived experience. It is true. We are all citizens of a world not yet born. And this is our moment. We have a blank canvas in many regards in front of us, and we can really paint a different future. Smiley, what about you? Are you optimistic? Yeah, I, I'm very optimistic. Almost, it's, it's almost like optimistic isn't even the word. It feels more like a driving rush towards what will hopefully be the inevitable. Sure, the arc of history bends towards justice, but it is a messy arc and I am on it for the win. And I'll just say two things. The first is that the last great awakening was when over 500,000 formerly enslaved black people simply walked off the plantation. They, they weren't waiting for the perfect law. They weren't waiting for the Emancipation Proclamation. Many of them weren't waiting until Juneteenth to be freed. They walked off. And it was up to the movements of the time to then secure that mass spontaneous action into policies that would abolish slavery and ultimately integrate this formerly enslaved population into what would hopefully one day become a multiracial democracy. And in many ways, that's the challenge for our movements today. We have workers who are walking off for better conditions, for a better life in hopes of securing more sustainability and dignity and to be able to work to live. And it's our job to actualize that into the infrastructure and protections to fully allow them to do that. The last thing I'll say is that my ancestors who did that, who walked off of those uh, plantations in hopes for better life, often did it while singing. And there's a resilience that has come from working people that has really inspired me in the process of writing this book. And so I feel like, Kalila, if, if my ancestors could walk off of uh, and survive the conditions of a plantation and walk off singing, then Jesus, I can definitely spend time writing a book and fighting for expanded bargaining rights in this country. Joy is indeed an act of resistance. And I appreciate both of you for the ways that you promote this, but also are so committed to it. Erica Smiley is executive director of Jobs with Justice. Sarita Gupta is vice president of U.S. programs at the Ford Foundation. They are co-authors of The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. Sarita and Smiley, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. Thank you for having us. That's Sarita Gupta and Erica Smiley. After the break, how urban centers are adapting to a remote workforce. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We can end the shutdown of schools and businesses. We have the tools we need. It's time for America to get back to work and fill our great downtowns again with people. People working from home can feel safe and begin to return to their offices. 
That's President Joe Biden in his State of the Union address earlier this year. He's echoing what many business owners and politicians are hoping for. That's getting more people back to the office so business districts and urban centers can thrive. But some see remote work as an opportunity to reinvent cities for the future. Richard Florida is an urbanist and professor at the University of Toronto. His 2017 book is The New Urban Crisis. He looks at how cities are facing inequality and deepening segregation. Most recently, he's researched the impact of COVID on our cities. Richard, welcome to Disrupted. It's great to be with you. And I I love the title of your program because it captures so much of what we're going through at every level. Thank you so much. And it's all interconnected in many of the ways that you reflect in your work. One of the major outcomes of this pandemic has been the shift to remote work, where pre-pandemic, some people were skeptical of is work really being done? What's happening there? And now we're seeing that nearly 20% of American workers are expected to work from home in the future. How do you think this change, the shift in remote work and how we do our work, how do you think that change will impact the lives that we lead in cities? Well, you know, to my mind, it is probably the biggest single shift of the pandemic is this shift to remote work. I People talked about people leaving cities and, you know, decamping from New York and San Francisco. And I think much of that has been temporary. Those they're starting to rebound. We can get to that. Remote work is a pretty big shift. And the fact that virtually everyone who was a knowledge worker, a professional worker, a creative worker, kind of we flipped a switch. And the best data we have suggests that about 20% of working days will be done remotely. I forget how many, 10 to 15% will work full-time, more hybrid. But you're talking about now a day, a week. And, and most people, when you ask them, would would prefer at most two days remote. So yeah, you know, it, it's a change and it's going to affect, I think, the office districts of cities the most. I think, you know, it's not good. Productivity is up because of remote work, about 5%. I think that the places that will get hit the most are really these office districts of cities. And, and I don't think it's the end of the central business districts. I just think we're, they're going to have to change. And it sounds like some of these changes, some of these trends were already in play. So while the pandemic may have exacerbated some of these trends, there were already conversations happening about the generational differences, where people live, where they want to live, what their relationship to work may be. Do you see these sorts of generational differences continuing when we think about the future of cities? And if so, will that have an impact on the kind of commercial corporate districts that you've mentioned? Yeah, I don't I don't think COVID is a game changer in terms of how we live and work. I think it's an accelerator of changes that have been underway for two or three decades. I think the real game changer was the shift from an industrial economy, you know, where in the 1950s, most everyone worked either in a factory or for a big industrial company. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't know if it's the 1980s or 1990s or early 2000s, people started, they said society deindustrialized, the manufacturing jobs were better and a lot worse, were shipped over offshore. And we became more of a knowledge economy where, you know, now about 40% of Americans work with their minds, do professional knowledge or creative work. And, you know, another 45% do service work. They're the essential workers. And, and you know, 
less than 20% of Americans do industrial work. And, and in fact, only 6% of Americans work in factories. So that change really is, is what has affected the way we live and work, where we choose to live, how we choose to work. And I think what happened is the rise of these new technologies, the internet technologies, meant that you no longer had to pack and stack. I often call these commercial cores, you know, the last gas of the industrial era. We had to pack and stack knowledge workers and they had to commute on trains and buses and cars into commercial corridors and they'd stay there nine to five pushing paper. You don't need to do that anymore. What happens is young people go to cities. And what we know is about up to the pandemic, over half the increase in the population of big cities areas was driven by young people in their 20s. And then when those people get married and have a family or partnered and have a family, not necessarily get married, they figure out pretty quickly that it's hard to raise kids in a city. So then they begin to look for where to live. In the past, that has been the American suburb. I think what the pandemic and remote work has done is, is really where it's changed the calculation is it, it says you no longer have to pick the nearby suburb. I think what happened with the pandemic is people said, oh, I could move to Miami Beach. I could move to Nashville. I could move to Austin. I could move to Bozeman, Montana. I'm just making those up. So people have been able to stretch where they live when they have families. But I think the COVID accentuates this demographic divide. And I think cities are going to get younger. And, and more and more families, at least in the time for the time being, are moving out. The other thing I would say is I wouldn't make any predictions now. But I think give it a six months, nine months. And, and I think we might, I don't, I think throughout all of human history, people have always wanted to be around other people. Like that we're social animals. I don't think we thrive when we're locked up in our pajamas. I think we're going to see that people want to reconnect. So I say we're still too early to figure out what this is going to look like in the end state. And I think, I think we're going to see more of a rebound than we think. You know, you mentioned that we are social creatures, we are social beings, and we want the choice to interact with people, not to be forced, but to have a choice and an option. And one of the real concerns that have come through this pandemic is the kind of social isolation that people face, because now your home is your office, it is the studio, it is everything that used to be separate, and there may not be those opportunities. When we think about commercial business districts, because there is this concern that remote work will lead to the death of those districts, how do we balance those sort of commercial needs with the more individualized realities about what isolation can mean for cities, but also for work? Well, I think that we're just now beginning to come to grips with the fact of the, not just the physical health, morbidity and mortality, excess deaths. I think we're beginning to come to grips with the fact that this has been ravaging our mental health. And, and a lot of that has been about social isolation. Human beings don't thrive well in social isolation. I think related to that, we're getting this kind of effect that Americans are retreating to, I don't want to call them gated communities, but that's a good rubric. Um, it's not like everyone is living in a gated community, but, but if they're in a city, they're in, a, they're in a, a, a big building and they don't go outside, even some of these new offices that are being built are having a lot of amenities inside. So I think this privatizing and this isolation is a real thing. When I look around now, I think everything city is back. The only thing that's not packed is the office. So what I think is we, we have to rethink about our, what we think is uh, what we call a central business district or a downtown I don't think it's a business district. I think it's a neighborhood. 
And it's a really well-positioned neighborhood. It's a neighborhood with great location and great you know, transit. And, and what we've seen in downtowns is they've been adding residential. They've been adding restaurants. They've been adding amenities. And I think we have to think about them less as central business districts and more as central connectivity districts, more as the places people come to connect. And I think what we're going to see as we rebound out of this is people wanting to get out of what you called isolation back to connecting. And I think that's what we're going to see. And I think we're going to see more of it than we expect. There is an air of optimism and possibility as I listen to you talk about what's been happening and what can happen. What would you say are one or two strategies that we could really embrace this as a moment for innovation as opposed to just accepting that things will happen? Well, now this is where I start to worry because in the word I would use is that we need intentionality. Let's take the, the great Spanish flu for an example. The Spanish flu happened in the, the mid-19, 19, 19, so 1917, 1918, 1919. What you learned in its wake is two things. One, we got the roaring 20s. It was a period of, of rebound, of revitalization. What I worry about, though, is that we move into the roaring 2020s, that actually we have this great rebound. But just like the 1920s, we're seeing escalating inequity. Just like the 1920s saw the rise of the robber barons and the great Gadsby and the Gilded Age, we're seeing the rise of these you know, super tremendously billionaire, super rich. We're seeing racial and economic divisions we have not seen since I was a boy. And if we're not intentional about this, I think it worsens. And right now, when I look at the housing market, I see a housing market that's becoming unaffordable. So yeah, what I worry about, if we're not intentional about how we re rebuild and revitalize, we're going to get a giant party and a feel-good session, but it's going to be a society that's more and more inequitable. Well, it's bizarre and peculiar, and it is as American as apple pie. Richard Florida is an urbanist and professor at the University of Toronto. You can find links to the work of all our guests by visiting ctpublic.org slash disrupted. This episode of Disrupted was produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. The show is also produced by Kevin Chang Barnum. Special thanks to our interns, Jacob Gannon and Taylor Doyle. You can listen to all of the episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>